All right, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at a passage here written by the Apostle Paul starting in verse 14. If you do not have a faith and action sheet, hand your, hold your hand up uh, and we'll get you one. Uh, if you're worshiping and you have your hands up, put up two hands, we won't give you a piece of paper. You know, when, when we discuss like we are, we're focusing in now on this, on this topic of freedom in Christ, and I've come at it from various ways. The typical way a pastor will do this, and I've done this as well, is we will we'll talk about the things like forgiveness, like we did last week. Forgiveness is a means to freedom. Uh, I started out this series by saying you have to know who you are and to whom you belong. That's part of freedom. And one thing that's rarely ever addressed when it comes to living a life of liberty and freedom in Christ is emptiness. Why, I don't know. We don't need to be empty and try to work on forgiving others. Fullness is a requirement. It's a prerequisite to living a free life. You have some blanks there. Emptiness is a big-time foe of freedom. By emptiness, what do I mean? This feeling of listlessness. I don't know where I am. I don't know where the Lord is. You got some sort of uh, crack or crevasse in your heart, and you're not where you know you've been in the past, and you're not where you want to be, and you need, a little, you need the Lord to be a little more nearer to you and you to him. You need some fullness. I'm going to try to, it's a hard word to define, but I'm going to try to do it today. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a state of being, emptiness, that lends itself to frustration and fatigue and bickering and uh, walking in the flesh, okay? Flesh is a big word there. Walking in your own strength, doing your own thing, disciplining yourself to act a certain way, as opposed to being blessed and full of God and, and it, 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 effortlessness. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. There's a difference. Striving in the flesh, yoke is easy in the spirit. So emptiness is a, is a foe, big time foe of freedom. Emptiness is not fun. I'll tell you that. I've been through seasons of emptiness. Seasons of emptiness in the pulpit are not fun. There is nowhere to hide. Equal, uh, emptiness can be equal to happiness. Things go good, you're happy. Things go bad, you're not. That's emptiness. It's conditional, predicated upon circumstances. Emptiness remains, excuse me, <coughs> emptiness remains impartial. It doesn't really care, it's ambivalent. It's not going to move you anywhere. It's going to try to keep you right where you're at. It's not going to inspire you. It's not going to motivate you. It's just going to cause you to just basically sit there, be slothful, pity party, emptiness. It doesn't in inspire anyone to do anything, not even to explore opportunities. In emptiness, we make bad decisions. Geographical moves. Why did you guys move to this city? Well, we wanted our life to change. Uh, did you realize that you were coming with yourself and nothing in you has actually changed, just your surroundings? Have you picked up on that? And that's why you're wanting to move again. I have people in my life like that. Emptiness, you don't make the best decisions. Uh, well, the Bible shows us how to deal with emptiness. 
In fact, I would say one of the best things for emptiness is what I call displacement. Most people want to live their Christian life with, with some sort of surgical tool. If they had one, it would go down inside of them and pull out of them some bad attitude or pull out of them some craving for uh, Ben and Jerry's. Or they would uh, reach down in there and say, I, I wish I just wasn't like this. I'm going to try to get rid of this. I'm going to try to extricate it from my life. I'm going to try to just kill it. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not going to do this. Well, fullness displaces emptiness. The things that are, are in our life, the behaviors and things in our life that, that we have when we're empty, when we're not satisfied, when we're just kind of like not really there, are displaced by fullness. Add God to the program and the other things are displaced out. Let God do it. Why are we trying to do so much? I gotta be honest with you, we're not the sharpest tack in the drawer. Let God do some of this stuff. So if God fills us, that's a weird word right, I'm using right now because nobody, everybody's got a different definition. But if God fills us, I'll get to that, it displaces all these bad attitudes we have, okay? Fullness and freedom are best friends. Fullness and freedom travel the same road. So do faith and wisdom. Some people have faith and no wisdom and they're reckless. They're, they're just off the charts. Maniacs. Some people have wisdom and no faith. Faith and wisdom traveling together when they're best friends, that's hard. When you got a man who's full of faith, a woman who's full of faith, and they have discernment and make good decisions, that's for real. When you got someone who's empty, yeah. They don't do well. And the reason you come to church, if you really got down to it and thought about it, about two or three layers down is you want to be full of God. Boom. And you're looking for a church that's going to help you be full of God. That's what you're looking for. Fullness and freedom are best friends. They're companions. And fullness is incredibly fun. I never did figure out, as I looked at Christianity and I was approaching it and I got saved, I thought, well, I know Jesus died on the cross and so did fun. I did, I thought that. It's funny. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. What most people don't understand about that is the desires of your heart change. All of a sudden you're having fun. Delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll also change your heart, change your desires and redefine what fun is. The Bible leads us to fullness in Christ. So we're going to look at a passage today, Ephesians 3. Let me read it to you. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's quite a statement. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. I'm talking about the inner man, the inner woman today. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. If you're wanting to live some sort of superficial life, full of sarcasm, no intimacy, just take it as it comes, keep it on the surface. First of all, it's not interesting. Nobody's interested in that. And nobody's interested in you when you're like that. We need depth. 
May your love abound. May your love increase more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Depth. To care for you as a minister, I need in a superficial world to provide you with depth. If you don't partake of the depth, you're going to act worldly. There's nothing of Jesus that is only surface. There's always depth. Depth of meaning, depth of purpose, depth of resolve, depth of understanding, depth of strength, depth. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Here it is, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let me be clear. I don't think I'm wrong in saying this. Not all evangelical Christians have a clue what I'm talking about. The, the illusion that church attendance, frequent or infrequent, on high holidays or no days, the illusion of understanding and reading your Bible from time to time is somehow equivalent with fullness and depth, oftentimes is not true. I want to talk to you about a word at the end of this message that is so vitally important that you understand, not just in your head, but in your heart, and that word is flow. Get to that in a minute. All right, so let's break this passage down. He says, for this reason. In other words, when you read the Bible and you see therefore or for this reason, you go back ahead and you find out what he's talking about. What he's talking about is the mystery of the gospel and the revelation of who Jesus Christ is and the incredibleness of who he is uh, and the fact that he even wants to save Jews and Gentiles. And this whole thing has just totally racked people's minds, blew their minds. They're on a totally different page than they've ever been before. And he says, for this reason, we got to get the fullness. In other words, I've seen something of Christ. I've seen him do things in people's lives. I've seen the miraculous. I've seen the transformation in my own life. And he's saying to himself, he says, listen, we've got to get to fullness. Without fullness, what are we doing? What, why in the world would we not full, want fullness of this one, Christ? If you want fullness, you want fullness of him and no other. We've got to get this fullness. Now, how do we get this fullness? That's what he's saying. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Well, fullness starts with humility. Come on, you know this. Fullness starts with adoration. Fullness starts with submission. Fullness starts with humility. Uh, Acknowledgement of the supreme being. Fullness starts, starts at the very beginning with the deity of Christ. And, and here's what you need to know this morning. There is a God and you're not him. And nor am I. That's where you start. And the more, more that God of yours is magnified and exalted, and the more you sing to him and praise him, and the more you extol his name, and the more, the more he embodies his grandeur and his splendor and his magnificence and his eternality, the more you see him for who he truly is, well, you can't help but kneel. How could you not? 
Um, I, I, I like the picture of a king anointing a knight who's kneeling before him. I like that picture, the sword on each shoulder, that you're now, a, I'm, I'm anointing you a knight. You now, you, don't, you now walk in integrity. You now are a representative. You now uh, fulfill the mission desires of the king. You now represent your land, your kingdom, your values. You now represent those things. Now go defend them, okay? Well, that, no knight has ever been anointed by standing up in front of the king. Paul knows that. He says you gotta kneel before the king. You gotta kneel before the father. Fullness starts with humility, and you gotta kneel to be knighted, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. Did you ever do this when you were raising your kids? I'm, we don't do that, we're, I'm, we're a Hewans. Hewans just don't do that. Bates, they don't, we don't do that. Bakers don't do that. Barbers don't do that. McKims don't do that. This is who we are. The Hilliers don't do that. The Steepletons don't do that. That's not who we are. In our family, we choose to do something different. Joshua kind of had it. As for me and my house, we choose the Lord. You know, that's it. We're not about that. That's our family name. Well, every family name derives its name from Christ. Every person came from the one person, Adam and Eve. How about that? So God's in charge of all of that. That's what Paul's saying. And every family includes not just your lineage, every family includes this church. And to whatever extent we're willing to be a spiritual family and carry one another's burdens and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. We are all in different places of the progression of this place being more like a family to one another. And over time, this spiritual family derives its name from Christ. He says, I pray out of his glorious riches. It'd be easy if it just said, I pray, I pray that out of his riches, he does this or that. He doesn't. He says, glorious riches. What are your glorious riches? I've already told you statistically, we are among the, what, top one, two, three percent richest people in the world right here in this room. And I don't care what you make, you make a whole lot more than anybody else that works out there. We, have, we are rich. Make no mistake about it. When you look at the per, acida, per capita income of people around the world, we are rich. You're sitting on a pew. You're sitting on a pew that a lot of people, your pew is twice as wide as their house and about as deep. So we're, we're rich, but God has glorious riches. What is this glorious riches? I asked him. Every Friday I meet with a young man for a couple hours and we talk about the Bible and preaching and I challenge him and challenges me, really. And I had forgotten something about this young man. I had forgotten something totally about him. What I had forgotten is that I gave a gospel invitation one morning. He stood up and received Christ some years ago. I had forgotten about that. Now I'm, now I'm meeting with him. And the Lord said, that's glorious riches. There it is. 
I've put you together with a young man that I gave you the privilege of inviting into the kingdom and you're investing in him. Not only is that rich, it's glorious. So God's riches, God's riches, are not just, well, sure, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Sure, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalm 24 and 1. Sure, all of that, but that's riches. He has glorious riches. What's that? The difference that you and I make in another human being's life that oftentimes changes the trajectory of eternity. A kind, encouraging word and a wise counsel that helps them to make decisions that change the direction of their business, their life, their parenting, their marriage. That's glorious. Don't leave glorious out of your vernacular. Seek glorious, want glorious, embrace glorious. Because glorious you can take with you, riches you cannot. Glorious riches. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the spirit and your inner being. There it is. If God can take himself and the person of the Holy Spirit and strengthen you on the inside with power through his spirit and your inner being to God, that's glorious. And it's very rich. We need strengthening where we are weak. Here's what most people don't understand about weakness. Most people want to eradicate it or improve it or get so far beyond it with their own strength that they no longer see themselves, nor does anyone else see themselves as strength, as weak. I got news for you. Some of you have been around the block a few times and you have weaknesses. If you haven't overcome the weaknesses yet, guess what, you're pretty much not going to. Don't spend time trying to improve your weaknesses at this point of your life. Minimize them, get someone else to do it, and maximize your strengths. For every, every ounce of your being you try to improve in a certain area of your life and you make it your obsession you're also denying the rest of the world what you do best in your strength. Just do your strength. Act as though he's gifted you in those areas because he has. But in your weaknesses, don't deny them. Get someone else to help you with them. And in addition to that, boast in them. Boast in them. Don't boast in your strengths. Boast in your weaknesses. In my weakness... He is strong. You don't have to go out there and fight your way out of your weaknesses. You just need to surrender, acknowledge they exist, boast to the Lord before him, and ask his help in those areas to help you out. We've got too many things to accomplish to try to improve our weaknesses. We don't have time to get them up to mediocrity. We've got to take our strengths and go out there in the world and love people with our strengths. That would have been the time to say amen. You missed it. <laughs> I was waiting for it. His power overcomes our weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, if you don't believe me. He infuses our weakness with his strength. He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
I do like the idea that the incarnate resurrected Christ and the power of the Spirit takes residence in us. Like, I actually am a three-bedroom, two-bath for the Holy Spirit. That's not the question. I've got to get used to that reality because that's what the Bible says. What the reality I also got to get used to is if he's in me and he lives in me. The question is not whether that's true. The question is, does he feel at home? Does he feel at home in your life? Does he feel at home? Are you hospitable to the Spirit of God? Where do you bring him? And what do you expose him to? And what must he endure in you? And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. I have learned what rooted means. I'm going to share with you. I've been told by most everybody up here in Highlands, if you want to go to a nursery, you go to Seneca. All right. Off I go to Seneca. I'm not immune to driving 45 minutes to an hour. I live in Highlands. I do that three times a week to go to dinner that I can afford. So we go off to the nursery. We become the MVP of the nursery. I can see the guys. There they are. I'm I'm too tired to deal with them today. Last time they came, I had a load of like three trucks. I'm too tired. You take them. We walk in. We get us up. Okay, what what climate do you live in? What's the so we tell them between zero and ten degrees below zero. That's the climate we live in. Uh, Well, and then all our plants died. Okay, this year we're zero to minus twenty. Well, we don't have anything like that. This is South Carolina. So you buy your stuff, you get them all in the truck, you get all your plants, right? A couple thousand dollars worth of plants. You got them all together, and then they go, and how much of the soil treatment would you like? Oh, no. Come on. I know. I know what you're trying to do here. What you're trying to do is to get to the most profitable, most profitable item on your menu. You're going to slay me with a half a pallet of soil nutrient because that's going to make these plants grow. But I'm thinking these plants are going to grow because we have dirt where I live. About six months later, and three or four sermons from someone in my family about not getting the soil treatment and the dead plants outside. (laughs) Back to the nursery we go to buy new plants. No soil treatment. It's sandy, apparently, in most of the places I put the plants. And they're dead. Isn't that something? Isn't that fun? I'm boasting in my weakness. If you want to be rooted and established in love, you need some soil treatment. You need roots that go deep. The problem we have in our world today is people don't stay still long enough to get deep roots. 
They don't stay in the church long enough. They don't stay in a relationship long enough. They just don't. And the roots are on the surface. They're missing out on the good stuff down deep. They don't have roots that wrap around rocks that could never be pulled up with a track hoe. They have roots that are half interested in growing, kind of deciding if they're going to die or not, and waiting for a cool breeze to convince them that it's over. We need soil treatment. We need other people in our life to invest in us so that we are rooted and established in love. We have men in our culture that can't commit to anything, especially a woman. No soil treatment. And the relationship dies and they have to go back to the nursery to get a new one. Just from a sheer business standpoint, I would think that would get pretty expensive. I mean, really, you meet somebody, fall in love with them, you buy them gifts, you shower, you mind your manners. They think they know you, they don't. You have no soil treatment. The roots don't go deep, you break up. Now you gotta start the whole process all over again. You're buying gifts, you're cleaning yourself up, no roots. We are an unrooted society. And I pray, and this is why he's praying for it, because it's worthy of prayer. I pray that you be rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. The soil treatment comes by working together with other people, cultivating, cultivating and rooting oneself into a friendship that can't be severed, that is grounded and rooted and established in love, which is, oh, by the way, love is a key word in our faith. <laughs> it is the only word in our faith. Love. One puts 1,000 to flight and two put 10,000 to flight. Why are we uh, half-heartedly only putting 500 to flight? We need someone else to help us. Come to a men's retreat. Maybe we actually know what we're talking about. Maybe we do. To grasp, here it is. To grasp, to, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I'm sorry. But if we're gonna walk around calling ourselves Christians and put crucifixes around our neck and carry our Bibles and do what we do, if you're not gonna love people, just put it all away. Put a, put, get a private faith. Go, go monastic. Just stay at home and love God and the rest of us will go out and try to love others. Two greatest commandments, love. There's a young guy in my life, <clears throat> comes out of this church, I've watched him for years, and he, um, you would, by normal standards, we would say he's progressing. His faith is building, he's going to different cultures, he's relying on the Lord, he's, he's literally l believing and trusting the Lord for his next meal sometimes. I mean, it's that extreme. Faith is growing, he's growing in his knowledge of the word, he's going to different schools and different YWAM things and all this kind of stuff. T to normal standards and the normal perspective, we would look at that kid and we would go, wow, that young guy's really growing in Christ. <laughs> and the last time I, and usually I pray with him for like extended periods of time. 
And it gets really rich and really intimate with the Lord and the Spirit of God just like, whoosh. And I'll tell you why I did. Because he looked at me and he goes, I go, what are you learning? Now, I see what's going on with him, but I'm not going to tell him. I want him to tell me. Now that's really something. That's roots. He goes, you know, I've been doing this for years now. I've been seeking and reading the Bible and praying and believing for revival, and I've been laying hands on the sick, and I've been doing this and this and that. You know what the Lord's really teaching me right now? He goes, you won't believe it, that every person I encounter, for however brief the encounter, in whatever context the encounter, I leave the encounter and they leave the encounter knowing that I love them. He's in his 20s. He's in his 20s. It doesn't matter how brief, how extended the encounter, the relationship is, that person will know that he truly loves them. He's with someone, he focuses on them. He looks them in the eye. There's nothing else in the room but that person. There's nothing coming out of his mouth but love and understanding and attentiveness. That guy wants to love people. He's trying to grasp how high, wide, long, and deep is the love of Christ. Astounding. Someone gets it. What does this word grasp mean? It means to overtake a seize, to, to and even not only seize and overtake, but be overtaken by. To, um, to have no other choice but, to find it only normal too, to, to not even have to consider an alternative. Grasp means to love. I'm just going to love somebody. I'm going to love them where they are. I'm going to love the unbelievable. I'm going to love the easy to love. I'm going to love someone in a way they've never been loved before. I'm going to hold them. I'm going to embrace them. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to show them that they matter, that they have worth, that I care for them. And to be with them is the joy of my life. This is his mission. In his 20s. His motivation, his ambition, his mission, his drive, his purpose, his calling, his irrevocable calling right now is to not read every commentary and go to every church. His, his, his mission is to love somebody. No, sorry, everybody. Everybody. How wide is the love of Christ? Try grasping that. I mean, how wide is the love of Christ? My first answer is from fingertip to fingertip. And whatever you could stretch the arms out of the sockets to be, uh, there's, there's width. As far as the east is from the west, that's width. I see movies sometimes with aerial views of people in Texas out in the middle of this flat plain and there's these where there's no, no houses, just farms in the distance. They have these two crossroads, and a person will pull up to the crossroad, they'll look this way, and they'll look that way. And as far as they can see this way, and as far as they can see that way, it's the same. That's how wide the love of Christ is. How long is it? I don't know, what are you talking about? Like, time-wise, duration-wise, it's inexhaustible. It's... It just is. It doesn't, it doesn't have a limit. It's limitless. 
conditionalist. It's eternal. It's eternal for a finite mind and a finite guy to comprehend. What are people searching for out there? These people we're supposed to be sharing the gospel with. What are they searching for? Love, value, and belonging. People in this secular world right now, and people in the church, will follow anyone. And I mean this, they'll follow anyone if it gives them a sense of belonging and a sense of purpose. And they feel like they're a part of something. They'll follow anyone. I used to look at the book of Revelation, I'd say to myself, how in the world could someone come to this earth, be known throughout the world, and win the favor of the people, and they flock to that person who would find favor, and he brings peace, and he's just doing all these things, and all of a sudden he's revealed as the Antichrist. I used to say to myself, how is that possible? I no longer wonder. I no longer wonder. There is such an appetite for purpose, resolve, love. People will go anywhere with anyone. It even, and even talks about it. Except the church. I was like, we're getting ready. How high is this? I don't know. How high does your worship go? How vertical is your worship? That's how high it is. And how deep is it? Well, it has roots. Deep, immovable roots. The roots that stay in the middle of a hurricane. Those roots. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is the weirdest sentence in all the Bible. Oh yeah, okay, we're going to figure out how grasp how high, wide, long, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What? Yeah, I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you this, okay? It's unknowable because it surpasses your ability to have knowledge. But I'm going to teach it to you. So what, how are we going to do that? We're just going to have Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. And you're going to learn how high, wide, long, and deep is the love of Christ. Well, am I ever going to know it? No, no, you're not going to know it because it surpasses knowledge. Well, then why are we using knowledge to experience it? Why are we using knowledge in its limitations to learn about a love that surpasses knowledge? Doesn't make sense. So how do we know this love that surpasses knowledge? Well, the definition of that word know means to Allow in, allow in to trust. You remember Barney the purple dinosaur? Barney started a paradigm shift in the United States of America, if you don't know this, it's true. My kids came up during Barney. Barney taught kids to be weary of strangers. He did. Barney taught an entire generation, two or three, to be leery of strangers and with the greatest of intentions in mind. To know love is to not be leery of it, to not be afraid of it. To know it means to open your heart, be vulnerable, and let it in. 
That's knowing. If you can let Christ's love in, open your heart, discuss any issue with him you can, good, bad, or indifferent, share your heart, open it up, and allow him in, give him permission to know that he's safe, that it's, it's safe to give you the lordship of my life. I can entrust my life to you, and I wanna grasp this love that you have, I have to allow it in. And the problem is, a lot of us can't do that, because the last time we did that, we got burned. The last two times we did that, we got burned. Three times, four times, five times. The last seven times we did that, we got burned. And to grasp this love of which Paul is speaking about, you have to let him end. You don't let him in, your roots are shallow. The seed falls around rocky ground. You go to church, you thought, that wasn't a half bad message. If I knew half of what that guy was talking about, I'd probably say it was twice as good a message as I realized. But your faith is existing in an academia that is absent of love. It walks around it, tries to understand it, talks about it a lot, projects it, explains it, rationalizes it, the absence or the, or the presence of it, but it never really is let in. Paul's saying you gotta grasp it, you gotta let it in. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Filled. I love the definition of this in the Greek. It means to furnish. Have you ever been poor coming up and you had a new apartment or a new house and you bought more square footage than you actually had furniture? You didn't have to worry about getting up in the middle of the night and going to get something out of the refrigerator and hitting your foot on anything because there was nothing there. And the room, as empty as it is, it didn't look big. This is a weird thing with me spatially. It didn't look as big as it does when you put furniture in it. Seems like the opposite would be true. We've helped people out over the years who didn't have furniture, and they had an empty house, and a mattress on the floor, and no bed frame. Do you know what it's like to come home after work and look at a living room that has a TV and a metal folding chair in it? and then come home the next day and you have a sofa, lamps, comfortable chairs, and a rug, that's tall cotton. Your whole perspective on life changes. Your home is no longer a house, it's a place where you can rest. It's no longer a place you go so you can endure to the next day, it's your home. It's your home. That's what Paul's saying here. To be filled is to be furnished with the love of Christ. To the measure. This word measure in Greek means it's a ship, and in the ship you have your merchandise loaded up, and you have your sailors and your soldiers on the ship, and the oarsmen or the rowmen are in the ship, so that now you're ready to leave the port. You've got everything 
filled on the ship that is a necessity to move the ship for its purpose across the Atlantic. You can move it, you're moving uh, merchandise, and you can protect it. You're transporting people, you're transporting goods, you're full. If we don't live a Christian life that grasps how high, wide, long, and deep is the love of Christ, we, we wallow in a fakefulness called emptiness. And sometimes our ship has nothing on it but rosemen, oarsmen. And it goes places, but it doesn't bring anything to anybody. It doesn't sink, but it doesn't transport anything either. Or it sometimes is full up, you got everything you need, you studied all you need to study, you've embraced all, you got all the friendships you need, but nobody's rowing, and we're not going anywhere. Paul's trying to say this fullness to the measure of Christ, the ship is ready to leave the port and impact lives, commerce, because it can move, it can deliver, it can promise. That's fullness. Jesus said this, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I'm gonna take a stab at defining flow. F, freedom. I would also put in there forgiveness. Forward movement and forgetting what is behind. A man who flows, a woman who flows in God has an, an understanding of the presence of God, the mission of God for the day. Uh, they, have, they have leadings. They have convictions when they do something wrong. They have an encouragement. They want to sing. They want to they sing in their car. They want to worship. There's a flow. You might even, you might even uh, well, when there's a flow, you might even get three or four birdies in 18 holes. I've noticed that too. Explains my game lately. Flow. Uh, out of you will flow rivers of living water. L, love the Lord your God. The flow is because you're flowing, the spirit of God's flowing through you, you feel full, you have the measure of the fullness of God, you understand the love of God, you're, you're imparting love, you're receiving love, it's safe to allow in. You're, you're making it happen, man. Wherever you go, you're changing the actual ambiance and environment of where you go because who's going with you is the love of Christ in you. You're making good business decisions. You're building people up. You discern things that no one else is discerning. You bring things up and people go, I can't believe you said that. I was just praying about that. That's flow. Love the Lord your God. Oh, oh, others are loved as well. Second commandment. And W. When you're in the flow of the Spirit of God, there's a winnowing fork. And it is continually throwing you up and the wind of the spirits blowing through the barn and the wind blows the chaff away and the good stuff remains. It's a continual process of, uh, of uh, threshing. You're being threshed on a daily basis. You're, being, you're growing in an understanding. That's flow. Emptiness has none of this, by the way. None of it. Emptiness, there's hints of it on a Sunday morning, but that's all it is. It's a hint, subtle. Matthew 3 and 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn. Flow. A flow of ideas, wisdom, creativity, discernment, words, truth, worship, insight, integrity, truth-telling. There's a sense of calling, favor, purpose, mission, habitation, 
Flow, flow, the flow of God. You're filled, you're rooted, you're giving and receiving love. You're infused. This is what started me writing this thing right here. A transfusion. Many of you have had a transfusion. Many of you have been the recipient or the donor of a transfusion. A transfusion, by definition, introduces a like element, like blood, into a system to simply increase the element's volume and pressure to achieve a required physiological norm. A transfusion is something from the outside that's unlike you, but can help you that measures and balances things out. An infusion, by definition, introduces an entirely different element into a system to alter its level of vitality and purpose, often with redemptive, restorative, and therapeutic results. This is intended to help you see that we need to be infused with the Spirit of God on a daily basis. Something beyond our own emptiness in flesh and that infusion of inspiration, of power, of resolve, of love, or whatever it is, is gonna lead us to the fullness of the measure of Christ in our life. How do we get there? Well, it starts at this table. I've been taken, taken aback this week by the word absolute. During the 90s, I used, to, I used to hear it all the time, you did too. In a postmodern world, there's nothing absolute. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute law. And this gave way to what we call moral relativism. What is that? I will. If you want to know if something's moral or not, it's just based on our own personal opinion. You make up your moralness and I'll make up mine and we'll do whatever's relative to both of us. There's no absolute creator, no intelligent design, certainly no God, everything's morally relative. Do what feels good when you wanna do it, that's moral relativism. That word absolute led me to something about I wanna say this morning about this meal. Absolution is a term that is a declaration based on the body and the blood of Christ that declares you to be forgiven and redeemed of sin. In some circles, absolution is given only by a priest. In biblical circles, it's always given by a priest. The high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Our high priest, Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's one sin that's unforgivable, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That is so 
possible, but hardly probable. That's something so extreme on one side of a defiance to God that I don't know it's anywhere close to being fair that we would ever place ourselves near that. And Jesus knew that. If you, if you lose an understanding, or if we use today's words, we fail to grasp, this is very dangerous, we fail to grasp the depravity of sin, we also dilute the need for forgiveness and redemption and the need of a savior. You and I, for whatever reason, were born and are now living in a culture that its main agenda is to dilute the power of sin. Not a savior, sin. Not Jesus, sin. If sin is no longer sin, Jesus is no longer relevant. This church is no longer relevant. The resurrection is no longer relevant. And slowly but surely, like a subtle, warm breeze that brushes across our cheeks day after day after day, if we find ourselves empty, we find ourselves agreeing with the dilution of the power of sin, the one thing in our life we're given permission to hate, sin itself. And the more the believer grows towards a hatred towards others and not love, the more they're diluting the power of sin. And the less this culture or any culture needs a savior. Why would he say, do this in remembrance of me? Live this out again and again and again for all time. Why would he say that in the last week of his life? Put great words in the weights of those people who say things at the end of their life. Do this in remembrance of me. He foreknew what we would be in, the dilution of the power of sin and the embracing of error, sinfulness, and rebellion against God. And the reminder that cannot be forgotten is that the broken body of Jesus Christ and the shed blood of Christ is all that will forgive us of our sin. Absolutely. And we need that rehearsal. We need that redundancy because the redundancy with which we practice this meal is far less than redundancy of the message that this world gives you that there is no sin. Which one will you get caught up in? I have no idea. One will grasp how high, wide, long, and deep is the love of Christ. The other will lead you to a place of ambivalence and apathy. You might be rich, but there will be no glory to it. Therein lies the truth, my friend. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it. He acknowledged before the Father, of thanks for it. We thank the Father today for the body of Christ. He broke it. I thank him today that he was broken on our behalf. Gave it to them and said, take heed, this is my body broken 
for you. This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That's right, sins. Sins. Sins are transgressions of the law of God. Sins are not defined by our whims, our fads, our opinions, or the season of life where one thing is good and another is bad. One thing is embraced and another is not. Sin is found in the Word of God. Period. Exclamation point. And no, no words from that prophecy should be taken from it and none added to it. And every one of those sins to which we've all offended God with in word and or in deed. We've murdered people with our own hearts and minds and tongues. Let's face it. Are bulldozed into a sea of forgetfulness. An omniscient God chooses to forget by an act of the will of his own son. The greatest thinker, brain, omniscient God, all-knowing God, chooses by his own volition to forget. The communicants would come forward. We're going to prepare to come to this holy table. I'd be remiss if I didn't say these words to you right now. Examine thyself. It's part of the table. It's part of the invitation. It's part of the approach. It's part of the meal. Examine thyself. Come to the table, but do not schlep one solitary sin back to your seat with you. You leave it here, covered and atoned for in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. my heartfelt prayer, Father. There'd be a whole lot of cleansing going on around here at this table and a great recognition of our own brokenness. But in both we boast or in our weakness you are strong. Bless these elements. This Eucharist in Jesus' name. Amen. Please humbly approach the duo in front of your pews. Take the bread and dip it in the cup. Your sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ.